With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we do what we do here every time you deign to join us. We try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need to discern the times we live in. There's a lot of loud stuff going on that we need to figure out today. Let's start overseas and from the Department of Redundancy Department. Someday, I hope I will live to see that the country I love so much, the United States of America, and its leadership learn that we should not be in business with the House of Saud and the Saudi Arabia and the Saudis. But that day is apparently not today or anytime soon, and I know that. We're not children here. We understand there's geopolitical forces in the world. There's some things like we take Saudi as a lesser of two evils against Iran. We see that the Saudis are also a very rich country, but let's be honest here, mostly it has to do with oil. The top five oil producing countries in the world are the United States, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Canada, China, Iraq, AEU, Brazil. You can go on down the list. The rest of them shuffle out. But the big three are us, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. Well, Saudi Arabia and Russia, under the guise of OPEC, have just decided to give the Biden administration. It's not a full-blown FU, but it's really, really close under the circumstances. Let's talk about those circumstances real quick. We'll go to the Washington Post. A coalition of oil-producing nations led by Russia and Saudi Arabia announced Wednesday it will slash oil production by 2 million barrels per day in a rebuke to President Biden that could push gas prices worldwide, worsen the risk of global recession, and bolster Russia in its war in Ukraine. The move, organized uh, by the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, and its partners prompted a blistering reaction from the White House officials and reverberated almost immediately through domestic and global financial markets, threatening higher energy costs for the United States and European countries already grappling with inflation and economic instability. The cut to production also amplifies geopolitical tensions at a precarious moment for the world's major powers. Biden administration officials had launched an extraordinary effort to press Saudi Arabia to produce more oil to compensate for the global shortages caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with the president personally visiting Saudi leaders in a trip to Jeddah. With this move, Saudi Arabia has rejected those entities, at least in part, leaving senior White House officials contemplating their next step and publicly handing at unprecedented measures to undercut the Gulf nation's grip on energy markets. We should have done that for years ago, but back to this piece for just a second. Hold that thought. Russia will benefit from the cut because lower production will increase the price of oil, helping Moscow finance its war effort in Ukraine, and it could further test Europe's resolve to support Ukraine. Ahead of what economists project will be a sharp slowdown in economic growth through the continent. American consumers could also be strained by higher gas prices, which, by the way, uh, after declining for a while, have started to tick up just a little bit. Um, American consumers uh, were determined that lower gas costs ahead of the 2020 midterm elections is a Biden administration priority. This would be the first time the group cut oil production targets since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's more aggressive than many analysis had expected even a few days ago. The OPEC plus coalition, which is led by crude oil giant Saudi Arabia, 
said the cut in production would take effect in November. OPEC Plus said that the statement, the move was necessary to stabilize the recent fall in global energy prices. The president is disappointed in the short-sighted decision by OPEC Plus to cut production quotas while the global economy is dealing with the continuing negative impact of Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said um, in a statement. The statement added that the administration will consult with Congress, oh, that'll fix it, on additional mechanisms to, quote, reduce OPEC's control over energy prices, suggesting the U.S. policymakers could be interested in repealing longstanding exemptions to federal antitrust law that allows the consortium to effectively coordinate on prices if executed. That move would in turn elicit fierce pushback from Saudi Arabia and its allies. Analysts say this clearly portends the potential for higher oil prices, reinforcing recessionary forces in the global economy and heightening risk for global financial instability, said Mark Sobel, former senior Treasury Department officials. Let's just stop right here for a second. This was all avoidable. America is the biggest producer of oil on the planet, and we have the potential to outproduce Saudi Arabia and Russia combined. If we just chose to, we have chosen not to for political reasons. That's it. It's that simple. I understand people want to talk about the environment. They want to talk about fossil fuels and they want to talk about a green uh, future. I'm all for all that. Start with the reality you live in, though. Okay. The Wright brothers didn't start out trying to land on the moon. They started out trying to figure out how to do powered flight. If you want a greener future without so many fossil fuels, you have to start by acknowledging that the world runs on fossil fuels right now, today, in the year of our Lord 2022. Fossil fuels is not just how the world runs. It's not just how people get around. It's not just what powers industry. It is the currency and geopolitical forces. And to strip yourself of that currency means that you become a bit player in those forces and you become subjective to what other people want to do. Now, let's just be blunt here. Every administration of my lifetime has played way too much footsie with the Saudis for various reasons, from incompetence to naivety to outright corruption. And it's a bipartisan problem. So just go ahead and miss me with that. We keep dealing with these folks in Saudi Arabia and the House of Saud and all the human rights violations and all the nonsense and their wink, wink, nudge, nudge at terrorism. And you go right on down the list of all the problems that are going over there because we want to keep gas prices cheap here. Thing is, we could be doing this ourselves. But politically, we want to, with one hand, talk about green energy, talk about a clean environment. And then on the other hand, cut our own throats when it comes to geopolitics that make us more dependent on the oil of others than ever before. Let's be blunt here. The president, when he ran for office, it's on video. I'm not making this up. He said, we're going to end fossil fuels. Well, when that happens, that has an effect. Now, the war in Ukraine drove up gas prices. The global recession and inflation drove up gas prices. Not all the gas prices going up was the president's fault. We have talked over and over again till we're tired of it. Gas prices in the economy are something that the president gets too much blame and too much credit for. But he does get some of the blame for some of that because the policies he adheres to. So then he has to turn around because he cannot with his political background and with his party and with his previous positions and political and ideological positions on things like the climate and the environment, he can't just openly say, we're just going to produce more oil, which is the simple answer to all of this. So instead, he had to go hat in hand to the Saudis in person. And now they have publicly embarrassed him on the world stage. There's no other way to put that. They did this on purpose. And they put a little extra stank on the back end of it. 
They embarrassed our president and they embarrassed us because they can. They're jerking our chain to get more concessions and to keep their power over us in this area. And it's a problem for the Ukrainian people who are fighting Russia. It's a life and death problem. For us, it's an inconvenience because it means the gas prices go up and that becomes a political problem because it's an election season and gas prices translate to politics, one of the few environmental things that does. But it was all avoidable, President Biden. And it was all avoidable, President Trump. And it was all avoidable, President Obama. And you can go right on back down the line. If you want a cleaner environment, the fastest way to do that is get an energy independent America who doesn't have to deal with these untoward actors in other parts of the world. And then we can accelerate and put that effort and that money and that technology into transitioning as we go along. We can do it in peace and we can do it in prosperity. That's the only way it's going to happen, because otherwise we're going to end up keep running back and forth to the Saudis and others, hat in hand, trying to control something that we should have been controlling ourselves all along. And their human rights violations get excused by it. Russia's using it to actually invade other countries and prop up the Putin regime and all the nonsense and terrible things he's doing. It's currency, folks. You have to be grown adults about this stuff. I'm all for having a greener future, but it's still in the future. The greener future is going to cost a lot of money and a lot of research and a lot of technology. You want to fund that research and technology? We're not going to fund it by having to pay the Saudis for gas and oil. We can do it ourselves. And that may be a temporarily bitter pill to swallow to our environmentalist friends. I understand that. I get it. But it may be better pill than what we're doing right now where we're continuing to be embroiled with these Middle Eastern countries and empowering countries like Russia who shouldn't have any power over us at all. You're going to have to pick one or the other, folks. And our politicians, like President Biden, being duplicited on us, is doing real damage to not only the economy, but national security. That's just the truth of it. We need to realize that. Otherwise, we're going to be doomed to repeat this over and over again. That's why this segment I opened it, Department of Redundancy Department. Because here we go again. More Hurtel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hertel. We talk about mental health a lot on this program. Uh, we bring on mental health experts, just like we bring on uh, economists and lawyers and everything else, because it's important. If your head ain't right, politics and your culture don't really matter that much. You can't take care of yourself, can't take care of anybody else. I'm a mental health patient. I see people at the VA. Everybody that needs some help should go get it. Uh, this caught my attention. This is from the Fayetteville Observer. That's Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, was sent to me. Uh, Fayetteville mental health professionals hope a new inpatient unit at Cape Fear Medical Center 
will help adolescents who face issues made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic and other issues. Dr. Sri Jadapella, a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Cape Fear Valley Medical Center, said the demand for child and adolescent mental health care has become exacerbated since the start of the pandemic. Before the pandemic, she said she saw about five kids a week, but now she treats anywhere from five to 15 children a day. Remember, this is an inpatient facility, so these are the people that really need the most and intensive help. In October, a national state of emergency in children's mental health was issued by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association. Two months later, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory on mental health crisis. That's October this year, and then the spring is when this all happened. The number one diagnosis is going to be major depression and mood disorders. They said depression can be caused by various things, including genetic disorders or past trauma. And when a child suffers, the whole family suffers, Dr. Jadapala said. One symptom of anxiety or depression in children and adolescents is when they stop being able to participate in everyday activities, such as going to school. Traumatic events such as death, bullying, domestic abuse, and or sexual assault can all cause mental health issues. The inpatient units staffed by psychiatrists, psychotherapists, and recreational therapists helps children develop through positive self-affirmation, therapy, and medication if necessary. On the average, there are five children and 10 employees on site at any given time. The adolescent unit can house 16 at a time, and they expect it to stay full at all times. We need to not blow off things when we see it in the news about the mental health of our children. People have been laughing about things like mental health days at colleges and high schools. Don't laugh that stuff off. This current generation has been going through a lot, not the least of which, remember, they got to deal with us, the adults, their parents, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, just the adults in their lives. We're not exactly lighting the world on fire on how we take care of ourselves and the world we're leaving them. So we need to give a whole lot of grace to the generation coming behind us. And we need to make sure they have these resources. Now, I've been doing some research on this on my own for various reasons. I'm shocked at what I find. When you combine it with the issues in the child protective system nationwide, but especially in poor and disaffected areas where it's completely dysfunctional. When you look at the health care system for pediatric children, especially those that are uninsured, uninsured or underserved, it's a shocking mix of really bad stuff. And then you start putting the adult mental health crisis on top of it. That would be their parents and the other adults that are supposed to care for them. A lot of these kids don't have a chance in the world. We need to look at giving these resources to children because it's as expensive as it is to help our children with things like mental health. It's going to be a lot more expensive doing it for 30 or 40 years of caring for them as adults if we don't help them now. This is something we don't talk about enough. This is something we don't do enough policy towards. It's going to be, there's no way around the expense of this. There's no way around the sticky and icky medical and ethical and policy questions about it. Well, we better start talking about it because childhood is pretty relatively short. Adulthood is really, really long. And these are the next generation of voters, of workers, of citizens, of our friends and family members. Five or six years of treatment at this age is exorbitantly expensive. 40 or 50 years of life without proper care when they were children could be something nobody can afford. More hotel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We just got done having fun with technology with our friend Kerr Nusi, and uh, it was all behind the scenes stuff. So that's why we're laughing. Great to have her with us. Going to talk a little bit about the UK. Been a while since we've had you. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back. Good. In a different country this time. So it's feeling like I'm talking about UK policy in the United Kingdom versus the US for once. Yeah, you're hard to track down because you're one of them world traveler folks, but that's good because we like the perspective on it. Let's start right there. Uh, we're going to be working off your piece, The New Statesman. We're going to talk a little bit about freedom of speech, restrictions, online restrictions of things, especially with technology. But perspective is a big deal here because, especially the American audience, we have a very innate sense of freedom of speech because of the way our system of government, because of the Constitution, because of the way we grow up with those freedoms. That's not the same everywhere else, though, is it? No, I think the biggest difference when it comes to free speech is America has the First Amendment and can look at the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights as kind of the starting point for civil liberties. Whereas in different countries, especially in the UK, it's just a completely different legislative system and a completely different way of talking about free expression. Yeah. And this kind of goes to a lot of things is because Right now in the UK, there's a lot of turmoil, political turmoil, economic turmoil. We just went through the things with the passing of the Queen. You know, when I do my spiel for somebody like you on this program, I tell you, hey, this is we have a little different rules here in America than we do in the UK. There's things you can say. There's things you can't say. There's things I can say doing UK media hits that I can't say in America. When I go to UK, uh, they talk a lot about liable laws. Like there's certain, you can't talk about people a certain way on UK media that I can say in America. They can cuss. We're not supposed to be saying naughty words on that. It's a very important distinction when we get into rights, though, understanding that when you go over there or when you're over there and come back over here, it's really different. And the laws are reflecting that as well. Yeah, I think the way that we talk about free expression in the United States, we've got how do we moderate content online? How do we talk about speech and protest culture and the ability to say things in public? And then when you talk about the United Kingdom, just a completely different legislative structure. So where I come from in the world of tech policy, America, when you talk about what you can say or moderate online, you're talking about Section 230. But in the United Kingdom, they don't really have the equivalent of Section 230 and are currently trying to create what they think is a world-leading online safety law, the online safety bill. Does it function the same way as you'd expect speech regulation to function if you were an American? I don't think so. I think it's a completely different beast that focuses a lot more on regulating types of content and defining what types of content should or should not be online um, versus a more free speech focused perspective that would be grounded in the first amendment or grounded in a free market if that makes sense now it does Karen nuthi joining us she's senior policy analysis at the information technology and innovation foundation center for data innovation you got to get you a nickname or an acronym in there somewhere that's a lot um let's go to what you said in this piece though one of the things that we get into with these and you kind of lead off with it people want to talk about what's legal people want to talk about what's harmful people want to talk about what should be legal and harmful what should be illegal because it's harmful that's kind of the nut of a lot of this it's how do you do speech what do you do with it 
you lead off with it. So why did you use that as an entry point to talk about this particular piece of legislation? I think it's a great way to talk about the piece of legislation because at, at its core, the online safety bill is a set of legal obligations proposed um, on online services to moderate various forms of content. Now that's not just what is illegal online and what is illegal offline, it is legal and illegal content on user to user and search services. So when I say user to user, it's like you and me talking to each other online um, at its core and then search services being the classic search engines, how do I Google something or Bing something to figure out what's going on. It moderates through types of content, illegal content, not necessarily meaning like classic criminal offenses. Um, it's supposed to be priority illegal content and content defined within the bill as new criminal offenses on top of already illegal offenses. And then we've got what is classified as legal but harmful content. Some people distinguish this as content harmful to children. I tend to group this with the content harmful to adults also covered within the online safety bill. It is content that presents a material risk of significant harm to an appreciable number of children or adults in the United Kingdom, which if that sounds like a mouthful, it is, um, but it is also a subjective mouthful of like, what services must do for a list of content that has not been clearly defined yet. <laughs> um, and maybe in a lot of aspects should not necessarily be what's getting regulated. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Karnuthi joining us. You point out that this is a very expansive proposal. They're not just talking, people start talking about content. They're thinking, you know, YouTube, they're thinking Twitter, Facebook, things like this. This goes way past this. This goes into peer-to-peer -peer stuff. This goes into WhatsApp, Signal, iMessaging. These are things that have end-to-end -end encryption things. They're supposed to have, they're actually promoted as having privacy and security to them. And this is what they want to get into is the content required in that. Now, to the average person, those are paramount to private individual conversations. This is where this starts getting really sticky because, yes, technically it's content on a platform that you agreed to use on. The governments are looking at trying to regulate that and people are going, wait a minute, this is my personal free speech this is the swamp of this sort of thing. This is where it gets really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this bill is, as you mentioned, incredibly expansive. 
when you think about online content moderation or like online regulation of free speech, I think the classic things that pop up, at least in my head, are social media. So like, where do I post online to my friends and my followers what I'm doing or what my dog's been doing that day? But the online safety bill goes beyond that. It is covering user-to-user -user services that include traditional social media, traditional forums, but also something that I find incredibly worrying that's being covered, over-the-top messaging platforms. So these are platforms that don't necessarily need your phone number to work, but work over the internet to send messengers. Um, it's your classic Signal, WhatsApp, those messengers that you download onto your phone after you've gotten your smartphone to talk to your friends. Um, a lot of these platforms use end-to-end -end encryption to make sure that only the users who are communicating with each other can read the contents. So if I was to message you, only I and you could read the content, not the service, not some random person on the internet. Maybe somebody looking over our shoulder could read it, but like that would be incredibly unlikely. And also I'd be worried if our friends were doing that. Um, but covering that sort of content increases the privacy risks and increases privacy vulnerabilities in the space because it's essentially not compelling, but de facto compelling, like incentivizing online services to weaken their protections and to remove the privacy safeguards we've come to expect on these services because it needs to now follow this incredibly expansive platform regulation regime. That's called the online safety bill. Yeah, Kerr Nuthi joining us. I'm noticing a pattern here, whether it's this online safety bill in the UK, uh, some of the regulatory measures in the U.S., the Supreme Court's getting ready to look at the 230 in, in a very, people are losing their minds, but it's a very narrow scope involving terrorism overseas. So I think that'll be a little more narrow, but there's going to be more cases behind that. I'm noticing a trend here. Tell me if I'm wrong. When it comes to the, those content, let's just take something like a WhatsApp or something like that, end-to-end -end decryption, private messages, because that feels more personal to people. When it comes to that, though, these bills, you know, we know these companies are content companies. The old saying, if it's free, you're the product, right? So these these are information companies. They scan this stuff for the information. They want your personal information to sell off to other people. They want those demographic numbers. However, when it comes to this legislation, they always seem to want to lean towards putting the burden, and these are legal standards, so let's just use the legal term, they seem to want to put the burden on the individual users instead of putting some regulation on the companies that are using these for data collections. To me, it would seem like better legislation would be the company into this instead of punishing and going after the individual rights of the, of the users. That looks like a trend. So that looks like that's purposeful to me. Do you see it differently? I think it's a very hard square to circle. <laughs> um, I think the online safety bill really does focus on getting online services to regulate the way that parliament and the coalition in power at that moment think is best, be that with regards to free expression or with that reg with regards to privacy. But I think at the end of the day, regulation like this is going to make users lose. If the bill passes as is. We're going to face it in the UK and probably extraterritorially in the US and internationally 
incredible changes in what we can and can't say online and also incredible changes in what services are allowed where. Um, especially with regards to encryption, if the bill passes and it covers these platforms, we've already seen services say, well, this is too much. Let's just think about hypothetically refusing to listen to the mandates. Um, Will Cathcart of WhatsApp came out publicly saying that WhatsApp's got an amazing track record balancing online safety and public desire. So he wants to make sure that his company and what he is head of does not kowtow to the mandates within the online safety bill. That to me sounds like if services are forced to give up these security protections, they might just give up the United Kingdom, which at the end of the day might not hurt a very large business, but will hurt users within the UK more. Yeah, Karanuthi joining us. You just touched on it. I think an important piece of this is understanding the UK's role in the world with things like this. Outside of the United States, this is the English speaking center of business, of commerce. There's a lot going on. Laws in the UK have far reaching effects because London is a financial center. We saw it with the Russian regulations was a good example. Um, how many of the Russian oligarchs that were getting sanctioned, how many of them have places and businesses in England, all of a sudden, you know, everything from penthouses to soccer teams to almost all of Belgrave Square. You know, the laws in the UK are wide ranging. Speak on that, because if you don't have a freedom of speech, if you don't have tech protections in one of the financial hubs of the world, and also where a lot of dissidents from foreign countries flee to, they go to the UK. A lot of them do. This could have some far ranging implications far beyond just free speech online. This has political ramifications. It would have financial ramifications. The UK is a world leader on this. And I think that's a perspective they need to keep in mind, because like you said, if these companies start giving up the UK, that's going to have a lot of ripple effect. I think that's exactly a scary part of the bill. Um, the bill's regulating services that have a significant number of UK users and or treat the UK as a significant target market for their service. I can't think of an online service that wouldn't opt in to one of those, at least as like part of their long-term strategy goal. Like say it's an American company that focuses only in America. If the goal is to go internationally, the UK is always going to be a natural market to add, um, which means this bill will have extra ter territorial impact. Um, kind of the same way that we see the content moderation laws like Section 230 get mentioned in international news, we're going to see the online safety bill get mentioned in international news because it's hard to regulate the internet as just a country. Um, I'm talking to you from the UK and you're talking to me from the US, international content right there. What I say on Twitter will go far past the boundaries of the country I currently live in. Um, and that is just the nature of the internet. It was designed to be international. So any regulation in this space is going to have ramifications. So if something's not allowed in one country because it's on a list of content that needs to be moderated, it might be easier if that just slowly becomes the norm for everyone. That's why it's incredibly important for online services and for governments to focus on free expression and privacy as things to think about and consider when they're making regulations. I'm not going to say that 
it's possible to protect both. There's significant trade-offs between online safety and civil liberties. You can have free expression and you can have privacy, but you have to choose what you're going to protect when it comes to regulation and undermining free expression and compromising user privacy the way that the online safety bill does. I don't think there's a win in there right now. And that's why it needs to be amended. Yeah. And you touch on it, uh, Karen Ruthie joining us. Let's just take a real world example here. Uh, we're getting ready to have a court case. The Supreme Court's going to take up a terrorism case with uh, Section 230. There's built in things to this bill. Let's just use the example. If you have a country like Iran where there's known terrorist activities, well, we need to be able to read the encrypted messages to see if there's terrorist activities. Well, there's also things like the LGBT community where that can get you killed if that information gets out. That's where this stuff gets really hard because it's like, okay, people that are protecting privacy isn't just a buzzword. It's something that's saving their life, that's keeping them alive. That's, you know, political dissidents, the same thing. Countries where the LGBT community is outlawed. Uh, you pick anything you want, dissent in Russia, dissent in Ukraine, you know, pick whatever you want. The real world ramifications of this stuff, those are also going to be the same places where they're going to argue things like, well, we need to look for terrorism. We need to look for criminality. You said it a minute ago. I don't know how you square that circle. I really don't know how you square that one because there's no way that you're getting in that water without getting the clean and the dirty at the same time. I mean, that's why anonymity is. It's a hard topic to talk about, but it's so important. Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, dissidents, human rights activists, abuse survivors, LGBT youth who don't feel comfortable um, coming out yet. These are, these are diverse communities that rely on platforms that use privacy safeguards like end-to-end encryption to keep their content to themselves. Opening those spaces up to now new regulation, which would potentially introduce weaknesses, puts those communities at risk. And that is a situation nobody who relies on anonymity should be put in. Um, it's maybe on the extreme end of examples in the sense of like threats of persecution and violence being critical to anonymity, sure. That's why including private communications in the scope of the online safety bill is just so damaging. It's real world harm and real world issues that are a matter of safety. Um, and choosing to protect people and create online safety in one regard, while also opening up this chasm of privacy issues is not a solution. joining us. Let's zoom back out for a second. Just the overall state of things like rights and free speech in the UK right now. Of course, there's the possibly apocryphal famous quote of, you know, you're in England, you're free. You can be a villain in England, but you can't be a slave. This kind of legislation worries people because they're worried about if your private communications are taken away, if your 
internet, which is a huge freedom that's new to the world and new to most people, but now we have generations of people that are used to it. If that freedom of information and knowledge starts getting taken away, they're going to start feeling more slave than just a villain with this kind of legislation. What's the overall status of rights and free speech and the information age in the UK today as it currently stands? It can be really interesting um, in the sense of what I remember um, the Euro Cup, there was all of that hate getting propped out on Twitter. Um, but then a few days later, people were arrested for their tweets. Um, I remember when I was growing up, there was the news headline of the dog um, whose owner got arrested for making his dog promote incredibly horrible anti-Semitic things. Social media and conversation on social media has offline impact in the UK. 11 people were arrested after the Euros last year for suspe being suspected of sending messages on social media. The messages on social media were disgusting. Like no one should be as hateful as the hate getting spewed during the Euro Cups. But also people got arrested for what they said online in a way that I as an American can't think of a direct parallel of a sporting event leading to arrests because of social media speech. Yeah, I've, I've talked about it before because obviously America has its problems with things like race and hatred and prejudice and bigotry and these things. But then it also sounds like we don't have to have sports events in front of empty stadiums over it either which happens frequently in Europe. I mean, I've, I've seen that in person living over there before. I Look, I, I could get on my high horse here. I don't know how you solve some of these problems. I do know this part of it, though. I know that there's no version of this where everybody's solution isn't going to be the government has to use a lot of power to fix these problems. That's, that's how all these are going to end. And my fear is anytime you go to give the government power to fix a problem, that's when abuses start, that's when overreach starts, and that's where the accountability stops. Is that a legit fear with this legislation as you've laid out? I think this legislation is incredibly worrying for the amount of power it gives government officials. It has a, the online safety bill gives, in my opinion, far too much discretion and far too much power to the Secretary of State for digital culture, media, and sport. Secretary of State being the MP in charge of digital culture, media, and sport, they and the regulatory agency charged by the online safety bill, Ofcom, um, which is, I think, an acronym for the Office of Communications, but is really like the telecom and media regulator. Those two government institutions, one being a person and one being an agency, have the ability to change the rules. They have the ability to look at the legislation and then define what is legal but harmful and define what is illegal. The Secretary of State specifically has the ability to essentially redefine what specific content, the online safety bill, duties of care. So like what content is supposed to be removed or moderated or proactively explained in terms and conditions. Essentially changing the standards of what can and can't be allowed online or must be specified in terms of conditions based off of what I consider a political appointee. Like the Secretary of State for DCMS is 
a political appointee by who is chosen from a pool of members of parliament and changes based off of who's the prime minister. So that means that a political party can, and a political party's desires can essentially politicize what is content that can be moderated. And I don't see anything more terrifying than politicizing what we're allowed to say online. Um, conservative party leadership might have one opinion, then, well, like another conservative party leadership, Liz Truss's administration might have a different view than Boris Johnson's, and they will definitely have a different view than Labour Party leadership or Liberal Democrats Party leadership. Letting one person and one regulatory agency change the game whenever the political tides shift is inconsistent and also just means that free speech becomes whatever a political party wants, which doesn't sound very free. No, it's not. And just to reiterate for the American audience, UK's got a parliamentary system. So with the exception of some you know, limited judicial reviews on certain things, whatever parliament says pretty much goes legally over there. And that's your concern because the American audience is sitting there like, what's she talking about? You have this, this, and that. You don't have a written constitution in the UK. You have whatever parliament says with very few exceptions goes. And as we see right now, parliament has you know maybe some changeover coming. It is worrying. And that's a piece that the American audience needs to understand about the UK and this bill in particular and how it works over there, right? Yeah. If it changes, if the system changes based off of political tides, based off of what the secretary of state changes within different lists of content that needs to be moderated, removed, or specified in terms and conditions, online services can very easily try to find a way to integrate those product changes for their global user base. Essentially saying it costs too much to splinter the internet and moderate one way in the United Kingdom and moderate one way elsewhere. Maybe we should subject non-United Kingdom internet users to similar moderation constraints. That means that the political leadership of the United Kingdom, if they choose to redefine what is legal but harmful content or choose to redefine the definitions at play in the online safety bill, are opening up a global user base of online services to reinterpreted content moderation practices. My brain immediately goes to an article where a Labour member of parliament came out saying that incels and climate deniers should be included in extremist content. That is a a change that has already been specified by a member of parliament as wanting to be added into the system after the online safety bill. If that's gonna happen under labor leadership, then conservative leadership can have a different story next time round. So there will be stark changes between political appointments in a way that is frankly ill-advised for a level of stability. Concerning stuff, tough topic. Karanuthi does a great job explaining it to us. Um, we'll have you back again. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, it was lovely to talk to you again. Appreciate you breaking this down for us. Until we get you back on Herdtel again, uh, and we're going to link to this piece. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself in the meantime. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with what you got going on, whether you're there, here, or yonder, because you move all over the place every time I talk to you. You're on a different continent. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you until we talk to you again, my friend. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Kirthi Nuthi, or you can follow my amazing team's work at datainnovation.org. I cover some of this stuff, but we have amazing work on artificial intelligence, data divide, and all of these other issues of facing technology and future technology. 
Yep. We'll uh we'll make sure to keep up with that. We're gonna have you back on because these issues are just gonna get more complicated and louder. They're not going anywhere. Karanuthi, thank you so much for the time. And if you're looking for your glasses, they're just right there on top of your head. <laughs> uh have a great day. Appreciate the time. We'll talk again real soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, ma'am. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Hertel. We usually try to end on an uplifting note. This one's kind of sad, but it's one of the most uplifting videos that has ever been on the internet or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, have you ever seen the clip of the runner who tore his hamstring running? It's from 1992 at the Olympic Games. And his father runs on the track, puts his arm around him, and helps him finish the race. He's weeping in his arms. The father's telling him to keep going. The father threatens the officials to try to step in like, no, I got him. Get away and swats him away. It's a beautiful human moment. It's one of the great moments in sports. A father, a son, it's universal. Courage, stick to encouraging. It's wonderful. That guy's name was Jim Redmond, and his son was Derek Redmond. It was the 400-meter semifinals at the Barcelona Olympics. It's 1992. And one of the Olympic Games' most poignant and iconic moments of all time, Jim Redmond has died at the age of 81. This is from CNN Sports. It is with great sadness I am writing this post to share the news that my hero, best friend, my father, has passed away, Derek wrote. There's so much I could say about this man, but he was truly one of my heroes in life. Anyone who knows me or has heard me present will know how much he inspired me in life, how close we were, and what he meant to me. To say he will be greatly missed is a true understatement. Before he became injured in the semifinal, Derek had been one of Team Great Britain's brightest medal hopes in Spain. He had qualified fastest in the first round, won his quarterfinal, and was continuing the form he had displayed in the previous year as part of the 4 x 400 meter relay squad that had won a gold medal at the World Championships. But as he passed the 250-meter mark in his semifinal heat, Derek tore his hamstring. This is a terrible injury, by the way. His second consecutive Olympic disappointment after an Achilles injury four years earlier. As his competitors crossed the line, Derek hauled himself off the floor and began hobbling on one leg towards the finish line alone until his father emerged from the stands, waving off the attentions of the stewards to help. Images and clips of Jim consoling his son as they crossed the finish line together, accompanied by a standing ovation, have since become iconic and is used as an emblem of the Olympic spirit. I love that video so much. It's one of those things that every time it pops up on my Twitter feed, I make sure I resend it. There's just so much there. It's such a human moment. Probably important to remember that Jim Redmond didn't think of that as a viral moment. He didn't think of it as something being the Olympic spirit. He didn't think about it as anything other than a natural reaction to a father going to assist his son. That's the way all greatness starts. The simple instinct to do the right thing. A lot of lessons in there for us all. Share that video if you see it and uh, have a thought for the Redmond family. 
a great man has passed. We should honor him. That'll do it for Herd Tell today. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to hear from you. We do whole segments, whole things off your recommendations. For example, uh, people have been asking us some questions about exploitation, uh, especially in TV, the Dahmer series on Netflix, uh, the blonde Marilyn Monroe movie. We've actually already recorded that podcast on the Marilyn Monroe movie. That'll be out this weekend. Um, and we're going to do a series on things that are exploitive with some of our regulars and some new faces too. That came from a suggestion from y'all. So let's have them uh, at Hertel show on the gmail.com. If you want to email us Hertel show on the Twitter, you can DM us and or reply to any of the media that we put out. Also, anywhere, however you're watching or listening to this program, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Big Talker, our radio partners, Facebook page, however you're watching, uh, make sure you send a thank you on there. You can do a rating, a comment, leave us a message on those. We usually see those as well. Also, lets other people know our program is worth checking out. We'd sure appreciate it because this is the only advertising we do, our social media and your word of mouth. And that's how this program has grown exponentially. And it's all because of you. We're going to keep doing it as long as you keep watching and listening. So until we see you again next time, however we see you, however you're taking in Hertel, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we can't wait to see you again right back here for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.